0: please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter eight. John chapter eight. Actually, we're gonna pick it up in, in seven verse 53, but normally it's grouped in your Bible with John eight. I saw this week a video of a, a church in Texas of basically people were choreographing what their Sunday Advent worship would look like, and they had all these drummers that were attached to wires hanging from the ceiling. Anybody see this? And and the drummers are playing, and people, I guess, would not know where they are, and then all of a sudden they look up, and then they they drop down from the sky, and they land, and and I guess they were going to intro their service with a little drummer boy or something like that. But people are doing all sorts of things to try to enhance the spiritual dynamic of their Advent services. Uh, things like uh, nativities, uh, animals, uh, those types of things. Um, but really, all you need to get to the heart of Christmas is the Word of God. This is where this is where. the the fire is. This is where the true spirituality is. Paul says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so if you really want to get to the heart of what the incarnation is about, it's so important to be in the word of God. And that's why we're not doing all those bells and whistles. We are coming straight to God's word to study the Bible. Now, if you would pick it up in verse 53 of chapter seven, they went each to his own house But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to to stone such women. So what do you say? And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. About a month ago, I was on a radio program with a guy up in, in Massachusetts, and he was doing an interview for whatever reason on me. And I was just telling him about our church and, and what we were doing. And he asked what book of the Bible we were going through. And I said, well, we're, I'm teaching through the gospel of John. And his first question when I told him that is he asked me, well, what are you going to do when you get to John chapter 8? He said, are you going to preach it? And I said, yeah, I, I plan on on preaching Uh, the first part of John chapter 8, and then I broke the cardinal rule of of interviews. I asked him a question, and I said, what did you do when when you preached through John chapter 8? And he said, I didn't preach it. I didn't preach the the first 11 verses. This past week, I had a phone call with uh, the pastor I used to serve under down in Texas in Dallas named Afshin Ziafat, and we were talking, and, and he said, what are you preaching this week? I said, well, I'm starting John chapter 8. He said, did I ever tell you the story of the time I started John chapter 8? I said, uh, no, I don't think you did. Well, he said, I started John chapter 8, and a guy named Dan Wallace walked into the room. Now, if you know who Daniel Wallace is, if you studied Greek, Daniel Wallace is one of the leading authorities on the Greek New Testament that's alive in the world. He teaches at, at Dallas Seminary, and Daniel Wallace came and sat in, in, in the back row and, uh, and sat throughout his message, and then afterwards, he wrote Afshin an email, and he said, if I were you, I would not have preached the story of the adulterous woman. And the reason that question was asked me on that interview. And the reason why Daniel Wallace told Afshin that he shouldn't have taught this message is because most scholars, most evangelical teachers don't believe that this is originally part of the Gospel of John. Now, in your Bible, do you see some brackets around the text or maybe an asterisk with a footnote at the bottom? Go look and see what the footnote says at the bottom of your Bible. Uh, my footnote says some manuscripts do not include 753 to 811. And then it says that others include it after different places. Now, don't worry. I don't want you to, to, to worry at this moment. I don't want you to start questioning your Bible, because if anything, this gives even more confidence to know and understand that what we have is the true text of Scripture. Let me explain what I mean by that. We have over 5,000 different copies of the New Testament, 5,000 different manuscripts of the New Testament. Now, we don't have a single of the original copies. Sometimes those are called autographs. What John originally wrote 2,000 years ago when he penned his gospel, we do not have but we have so many copies of John's gospel that we can compare them all together, and we can see if if 17 of them say, this is what John's gospel said, well, we know that that's what was really authentically in John's gospel. And in terms of the New Testament, the textual evidence is overwhelming. It's, it's really insurmountable. Uh, for example, uh, Julius Caesar's uh, Gaelic Wars, there's only 10 copies of it, 10 copies. The Iliad, the Iliad, Homer's the Iliad, the, the earliest copy that we have of Homer's the Iliad is from the 9th century AD. So literally over a thousand years after uh, Homer originally wrote the Iliad. With the New Testament, we have thousands of manuscripts going back to the first few centuries. We just don't have the original copies of, of what was written, and that for whatever reason, uh, God did not preserve those, but he preserved so many copies of them that we know what was in them. And what they found is, is they've gone back and they've looked at all the earliest Greek uh, Greek copies of John. And in the earliest copies, this story of the adulterous woman is not found in a single one of them. In the later copies they found, it was found in different places. It's a free floating story. So sometimes it's found earlier in John 7, sometimes it's found in John 12, sometimes this story is found in Luke. And often, when this story is, is, is placed in those Greek manuscripts, the scribe would put a bracket around it, or an asterisk, or set it off to the side. In other words, we think that this is true, but we don't think that necessarily John wrote it, or Luke wrote it, wherever, wherever it's found. And it is interesting looking at it, Uh, the vocabulary is a little bit different from what John uses. There's some phrases in the actual text itself that John never uses. John never refers, for example, to both scribes and Pharisees, uh, as he does here in verse 3. But some have also thought that, that it is genuinely a part of Scripture. So, Augustine, for example, uh, who was uh, a Latin father in the fourth century. He thought that it should be in, in the Gospel of John. Uh, John Calvin didn't necessarily think it should be in the Gospel of John, but he thought it it bore true apostolic authority. So where most people have landed on this is here. It probably wasn't original to the Gospel of John, but it probably is a true story that, a, that originated Uh, was written down by either one of the apostles or a contemporary of of the apostles, and and it eventually found itself in the gospel of John. So I'm going to teach it this morning. I'm going to preach it. I think this legitimately happened. I think this is a real story regarding Jesus and this adulterous woman. I don't think that there's any doctrine in this story that contradicts what is taught elsewhere in the New Testament, but we have to preach it with that caveat. We have to preach it with that in brackets, so to speak. So, if you want to study this earlier, if, I, if what I just said enthuses you, and you want to go study textual criticism and apologetics, uh, this, this is a great starting point. And by the way, there's only really two places in the New Testament that we're not sure that, that they actually belong, and that's right here, and then the long ending of Mark in... in, in um, in Mark chapter sixteen, those are the only really two places that are that are um, that we 're unsure about. so if anything, this really gives you confidence that the Bible that you have is what is is written by the apostles, so we, we, we don 't make an effort to to necessarily hide what was uh, not there now, one other thing before I, before I move on to the text. When the King James was written, the authorized version, that's what the King James, you know, James authorized the, the translation, that the text that they used, the textus receptus, contained this story. And so it's found its way into every English Bible. So that's, that's another reason why it's here. All right, now let's look at the context of this story. I want you to look at verse 53. Really, the first couple of verses flush out the context of what is happening they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. So, all the, this is dovetailing on what happened earlier. Do you remember Jesus had been in the temple? Jesus had taught. There had been uh, a great conflagration about Jesus, uh, a great dispute, and it says that the Jews, the, the, the leaders, went to their own house. Uh, Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives. You remember Jesus was really the uh, the original Boy Scout. Jesus always slept outside. Uh, I was in Scouts. Uh, Sir Baden Powell, the early 1900s, began teaching young boys to camp, to teach outside, and when I was growing up in Scouts, when we would go on a camp out, we would sleep out underneath the stars. We would just set out a tarp. We would all lay out underneath the stars. That's what we did every camp out. We enjoyed it for, for those two days, and then we were, we were miserable afterwards. But Jesus always slept out underneath the stars. Everybody else had a home. Jesus did not have a home, and that was part of his mission. Jesus says, Luke nine fifty eight: foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. This was Jesus' way of life, sleeping outside. So, He goes to the Mount of Olives. uh, He spends the night there. Look at verse 2. Early in the morning, He came again to the temple. All the people came to Him, and He sat down and taught them. I want you to underline or or put an asterisk next to verse two, because in this one verse, you really see the whole panorama of Jesus's ministry, the whole panorama of Jesus's ministry. Let me give you three points just about Jesus's ministry from this one Verse, First, you see the diligence of his ministry. He's up early in the morning. He gets up early in the morning. Jesus said John 4:34, "My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work." So he was passionate about his mission and his mission was to save sinners. So he gets up early in the morning, he goes into the temple, and then you see the nature of his ministry. This is what he did, is he preached the gospel. The text says that he sat down, that he sat down and began to teach. Now that's an important distinction because the the authoritative scribes, when they would teach, they would sit down, and that was a, a symbol that they were explaining the Word of God. That's, that's how the old rabbis used to teach. So Jesus sits down to speak with authority as a scribe would speak. And what Jesus was offering these people was salvation. Jesus says in John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. I once heard somebody say, God only had one son, and he made him a preacher. That was Jesus's mission, is to preach and herald the good news of the gospel. And then you see in this one verse, the scope of his ministry. So first, you see his diligence, second, the nature of his ministry, and third, the scope of of his ministry. Was he teaching to a few people or a lot of people? It says, all the people came to him. All the people came to him. Now, obviously, there would have been over a million people in town for the Feast of Booth, so this wouldn't necessarily be every single person without exception, but obviously, this is a huge crowd that comes to hear Jesus. This would have been thousands upon thousands listening to him in the early morning in the temple. We forget what a compelling and amazing teacher Jesus was. I was reading about George Whitfield, and when George Whitfield came to this country, 25 years old, he went up to Boston, and over 20,000 people congregated in the Boston Commons to hear George Whitfield preach. Over 20,000 people. It was the largest gathering up to that point in colonial America. There had never been a gathering of over 20,000 people. And they said you couldn't even hear a pin drop. Everybody was quiet except for Whitfield's voice. And when he finished preaching, he said, I must leave. And they all cried out and they begged him to stay. Such was Whitfield's preaching. Jesus was even greater than Whitfield. Whitfield said, "Let the name of Whitfield be blotted out, but the name of Jesus lasts forever." Jesus was the greatest preacher who's ever lived. Remember what the uh, the men said about Jesus earlier, um, verse forty-six of chapter seven, when the officers were asked to arrest Jesus. They said, "No one ever spoke like this man." Jesus spoke with true spiritual power as he explained the Word of God and called people to repentance. So Jesus is teaching. There's thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people in the, in the, the court of the Gentiles listening to Jesus teach, and all of a sudden this is interrupted. And, and I've titled this next section A Sinner in the Hands of Angry Sinners. What you see here is a sinner in the hands of of angry sinners. Look at verse 3. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They placed her in the midst of all those people. They, they basically brought this woman right up front where she's in front of all these people and placed her right in front, in front of Jesus. Now, if you're new to studying the New Testament, Uh, The scribes and the Pharisees, what you need to know about them, the scribes were the authoritative teachers of the law. The the, the scribes were the experts in the Torah, and the Pharisees were one of three groups or classes at the time in Israel. Uh, These groups are overlapping. They're not mutually exclusive. Um, So, you had the the three groups in, in Israel at the time were the Sadducees, those were the religious elite. Those were the the high priests. Those were the people who essentially ran uh, the temple. They would basically be the theological liberals of the day. Then you had the Pharisees. Uh, The Pharisees were the experts in the moral law. They were often hypocritical, and they became enemies of Jesus quickly because Jesus didn't comply to their teaching Of the law, Jesus also, by the way, offended the the Sadducees because when Jesus cleansed the temple, he was undercutting the prophets that the Sadducees were were making in the temple. So Jesus managed to offend both of those groups. But it's these Pharisees and the scribes, who were probably Pharisees as well, that bring this woman to Jesus and put her in in front of him. Now, if you're an astute student and you're using your logic, you immediately notice that something is missing here. What's missing? A man. A man is missing. How many people does it take to commit adultery? Two. Two people. Um, D.A. Carson, I I was reading his commentary, he said, quote, "'Adultery is not a sin that one commits in splendid isolation.'" That's true. It takes two, and so there is a man missing. We don't know why the man was missing. Maybe he ran and escaped, but more than likely, these men just grabbed the woman and essentially target her and bring her to Jesus. Look at verse 4. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery, So, um, several things to notice here. One, they call him teacher. Uh, That's duplicitous because the day before they had been saying that he was deceiving people. So, they're duplicitous. And they also say that they literally caught this woman in the act. That word caught means to catch red-handed. I remember one time when I was a boy, my friend David Morgan and I started throwing acorns at cars that passed by. And we just love to hear the sound of them ping off the, the the hood of the car. And at first we started doing it in trees, and then we got bolder, and we just climbed down the tree and just started throwing them uh, from the yard. And and one woman stopped, got out, and you know we're holding acorns, and and you know we are literally caught red-handed. She walks up, tells tells my mom, and uh, the the rest is history there. But that's. That's kind of the picture of what happens here. There's, it's not like they heard that she had committed adultery. They say, we caught this woman in the act. Uh, Paul uses that same word caught in First Thessalonians 5.4 when he says, uh, you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise or to catch you like a thief. In other words, the day of the Lord's return shouldn't surprise you. It will surprise some. It will catch some unsuspectingly, but it should not catch you unsuspectingly. But this woman here is caught, and the text doesn't say this, but you can imagine she's standing in complete shame and condemnation before the Lord, before these throngs of thousands of people, and before these scribes and Pharisees. Uh, The text doesn't say that she's innocent. In fact, at the very end, Jesus is going to say, go and sin no more. So there's every indication that this woman is guilty as charged. She had committed adultery. Now, what did Jesus think about adultery? What did Jesus think about adultery? Well, Jesus upheld biblical marriage. If you see Matthew 19, he was asked about divorce. Remember what Jesus said? He said, what God has joined together let not man separate. You can't separate what God has joined together. His, his teaching on marriage was so stringent, the disciples asked him, well, should we even get married? Should we even get married if this is what you're saying, that, that we shouldn't get divorced if God has, has joined us together? Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that if you look at a woman with lust, you have done what? you've committed adultery with her in your heart. So Jesus upheld marriage. He upheld the marriage covenant. So Jesus, Jesus is not one to diminish the realities of marriage. This is a serious charge that has been brought against this woman. And, and shame is, is experienced. Shame is a mechanism that God designed for us to feel in our conscience when we commit a sin against God. Have you ever thought about committing a sin and you you meditated on it and you say, okay, now's the right opportunity to do it, and then you did it, and then afterwards you felt that shame wash over you and you're thinking, wow, I wasn't planning on feeling that. I wasn't planning on feeling that shame and that guilt, but you did. And that's one of God's ways of of correcting our conscience, uh, of, of pointing us back to, to the truth of his moral law. So surely that's how this woman feels. She feels the shame, her condemnation, her guilt. Here's what the Pharisees say. Verse 5. Look at verse 5. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? What do you say, Jesus? The law says death what do you say, Jesus? Now it is true in the law of Moses that God commanded the death penalty for those who committed adultery. Uh, the punishment was much less for fornication. but if you committed adultery, it was the death penalty for both parties. And, and the text for that, if you want to go look those up, Leviticus 2010 if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. And it's mentioned elsewhere in Deuteronomy 22:22. same thing. Both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. Now, the law actually didn't specify that they were to be put to death by stoning. They add that. The, the, in the history of Israel, the, the majority execution method was by stoning. Now, here's the thing. The Jews under Rome were not allowed to execute capital punishment. You remember in, in John 19, they want to they crucify Jesus. What do they have to do? They have to bring Jesus to Pilate. The Jews can't execute capital punishment. So really, this is a mute point. This is a mute point. They can't stone this woman. No, no one had been stoned in, in, in Jerusalem's gates for adultery in hundreds of years. Uh, so, this is, not, this is not an actual question. This is a test that they are bringing to Jesus. This whole thing is a scam to put Jesus in a tight spot. And that's what John says in verse 6. Look at verse 6. This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against, uh, bring against him. So they're not really interested in, in bringing capital punishment to this woman. They're not. They're not really interested in the fact that she's broken the law. They don't even bring the man. But they are interested in entrapping Jesus. So what's the test? What's the test? Here's the test. If Jesus says the woman should be let go, he will be in violation of what? the law of Moses, the Old Testament law. If he says she should be let go, he's in violation of the law of Moses. If, she, if he says that she should be stoned, he's in violation of what? The Roman law. And also, he's going to alienate the group of prostitutes, tax collectors, sinners, all these people that have been following him. So that's the test that they're trying to put Jesus into. And I want you to think about, just just take a step back for a second. Take a step back and think about how foolish this endeavor is. Think about how foolish this endeavor is. Who is Jesus? He's the eternal Son of God. And you plan to test this man? That's your plan? There's a verse that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 Verse 9, he says this to the Corinthians. He said, We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. What's he talking about, destroyed by serpents? He's making a reference to the Old Testament. The Old Testament, remember the children of Israel, come right up to the cusp of entering the land of Israel. They send in 12 spies to come back with good reports. What were their names? Joshua and Caleb. The other 10 said it's no good. There's giants in the land. If we go in, they're going to kill us. They're going to kill our families. They're going to kill our babies. We can't go in. Well, for that, God says you're cursed, and no one over the age of 20 is able to enter the land because you didn't have faith. So you're going to have to wander in the wilderness until the older generation dies off. And then we're going to try it again with the younger generation. So they start wandering in the wilderness, and that older generation says, we want to elect new leaders. We're sick of this. We're tired. We want to get rid of Moses and Aaron. We want to elect new leaders who will take us back to Egypt. We're done. And right then, guess what happened? God sent serpents into their midst. God judged them. And Moses intercedes for them. He says, God, what, what, what do you want me to do to, to save the people? God says, you make a bronze serpent, you put it up on the pole, and everybody who looks to that serpent will be healed of, of the bite that they get from the snakes. Here's what's fascinating about what Paul is saying here. What does Paul say about that event? First Corinthians 10, 9, he said, do not put who to the test? Christ. He mentions the second person of the Trinity, as some of them did and were bitten, destroyed by serpents. What he's saying is that in the Old Testament, when Israel was in the wilderness, remember there was the manifestation of the presence of God in a cloud that led them. And he's saying that Christ was the one in that cloud, leading the people. And that when they rebelled against Moses and Aaron, they were putting Christ to the test. What does it mean to put Christ to the test? Can you put Christ to the test? You can. It means to walk in deliberate sin. It means to deliberately defy God? It means to dare Christ to do something? This is exactly what these scribes and Pharisees are doing, is they are defying Jesus. They are daring Jesus to do something. They are walking in known sin, confronting Him. So whose sin is actually more serious? Ask this question. Whose sin is more serious, the woman caught in adultery or the men shaking their fist at Christ? whose sin is more serious? Jesus, in response, does something really amazing. He bends down, and he begins riding with his finger in the dirt. He bends down. He, he turns and bends down, turns his back on everybody, and starts writing something in the dirt. Now, everybody wants to know, I want to know, what Jesus wrote in the dirt. Everybody wants to know that. And nobody knows what Jesus wrote in the dirt. If somebody tells you they know exactly what Jesus wrote in the dirt, they're lying because nobody has known the answer to that for 2,000 years. But let me give you the two best plausible explanations. One, he's writing some sort of condemnation. He's either writing the names of these Pharisees in the ground as sinners, or he's writing uh, a verse that condemns these Pharisees, such as Jeremiah Jeremiah 17, 13, which says, those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Or, and, and this is what I think is most plausible, He's simply drawing pictures in the dirt. And what he's doing is he's basically giving a non-response. He's basically de-escalating this entire situation. And he's completely disregarding the demand of these Pharisees. What do you say, Jesus, should be done to this woman? He just turns and he just starts writing. And he lets them stand there in front of all these thousands of people. So now they're standing there. And Jesus is just doodling something, riding something in the dirt. Look at verse 7. Their patience begins to run thin. They continue to ask him. They're trying to rush the point to get him to adjudicate what's going on. So he stands up. He stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And this is an absolutely brilliant answer, a brilliant answer, because what he's doing is at the same time he's affirming the law, but then he's turning it on the head of the Pharisees and the scribes. In the old testament law, Moses said Deuteronomy 17 7 that the first people to begin stoning are to be the witnesses. The witnesses who caught that person in the actual act, who saw and, and, and who who make testimony. And the reason for that is they 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 have to be perfectly sure if they're going to be involved in, in an execution. If they're not and they've lied, then they will be the ones to have blood on their hands. So in the law, it's the witnesses who begin the execution and then everyone else follows suit. And Jesus says, let the witnesses be the first to cast the first stone. And oh, by the way, you better not have sin on your hands. You better not have sin on your hands. Essentially, what he's doing is he's calling these men out for their own sin. Were they possibly guilty of adultery? Sure. Uh, Standards were much more lenient for men in that society than they were for women. These men could have been uh, engaged in adultery. We know that these men are testing Jesus, that this whole uh, mock trial with this woman is, is a sham to begin with, and that they're just doing this to entrap Jesus. So, we know that these men or not walking in the will of God, but Jesus is simply point out, look, you want judgment for her? It's going to be judgment for you as well. It's going to be judgment for you as well. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Look, we are all sinners, we are all sinners. Every single person in this room is a sinner. Nobody in this room is perfect. Every single person in this room has violated the law of God. You don't think so? Let's talk to your husband or wife or your kids. They'll tell us the truth. Every single person in this room is a sinner before God. Every single person, remember this, every, every, each and every one of us, deserves the judgment of God each and every one of us deserves to be cast into hell that's what we deserve and so what's your response when you see somebody commit a sin what's your response is your response when you hear the news of a celebrity that falls into sin or or maybe um, an enemy even is your response to to get excited and say yeah that's what they had coming is that your response? Oh, they they got it good. That shouldn't be our, the response of the Christian. The response of the Christian should be, that would be me if not for the grace of God. That, sh- that would be me if not for the fact that I had received mercy. Now, when Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged, that doesn't mean that we're not to be discerning. There are things that are right and wrong, and we're to call a spade a spade. But what, what we're not to do is to to stand on the tribunal and announce judgment and condemnation on somebody. That's what that's what Jesus is essentially saying here. These men are these men are more guilty than the woman. So, yeah, let let him without sin cast the first stone. And then what he does, look at verse 8, and once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. So now Jesus de-escalates the situation again and, and turns and starts riding again. And, and now the Pharisees are left standing there. And you know what? I think that they knew that they were beaten. They knew that they were beaten because now they're left with the decision. Do we, contrary to Roman law, start picking up stones and, and stoning this woman since, since we were the witnesses? Uh, I'm sure uh, the, the King James says that some of them felt their guilt. They felt guilty that, that they had been involved with this, and so verse 9, when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Now, when it says that Jesus was left alone, the crowd was still there. So, he's, he's alone in the sense that the Pharisees and the scribes have left, but the thousands of people that were in the crowd, they're, they're most likely still there. But Jesus is now alone with this woman, and she is still standing there in front of him, awaiting his verdict. And what will the Lord say to her? And now we're going to see what he says in the last two verses here. I subtitled this section, A Display of Mercy a display of mercy. Jesus is going to give mercy to her. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Now, condemn in this verse means to pronounce judgment at a trial. Has no one pronounced judgment over you? Jesus asked. She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you or neither do I pronounce judgment on you. And then he says, go, and from now on, sin no more. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Notice how she addresses Jesus. What does she call Jesus? She calls him her curios, her Lord. It's hard to know her heart. We don't know what her, what's in her heart, but we do know that the mouth speaks what's in the heart, and she calls him Lord. Indicating, I think, that a change has taken place in her soul. That she now, standing before Jesus, acknowledges her or his lordship over her life. And Jesus says to her, neither do I condemn you. I'm not going to cast judgment on you. But you go and you walk in repentance. You sin no more. You turn away from your sin and you endeavor to live a life of righteousness. And that's what salvation is. Salvation is receiving mercy at the hand of Jesus because of what he did on the cross for us. It's Salvation is all of grace, all of grace, 100%. But the person who receives grace is called to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, Paul says in Ephesians 4.1. We're called to live a life of repentance, to walk in repentance. Repentance means to change your mind, metanoia. It's a a change about who we are, and it's a change about uh, what we think about Christ. It's a change in what we think about sin, and and it's a call to turn away from our sin and look with our eyes upon Christ. And Jesus warns this woman, just like he did every single person, to no longer sin. Remember the, uh, the man that he healed by the, by the pull of uh, Bethesda in Jerusalem? He found that man in the temple, and he says, sin no more, lest something worse happen to you. Don't, don't keep living a life of sin. Contrast that with the message of the modern church, what does the modern church say about sin? It's no big deal. You just need therapy for it. In fact, we don't even use words that describe the sinful act as sin. We describe, we describe drunkenness as what? Alcoholism. We describe infidelity as, an, as a what? An affair. We, we use sugar-coated words to describe sin. Jesus didn't use sugar-coated words. Jesus loved this woman and had mercy on her. And in his mercy, he was willing to say, what you did was wrong. Go and sin no more. People think that, and this is what our culture has said, our culture has said that if you call out somebody's sin, it's what? Unloving that you don't love that person. Really, it's the opposite that's true. Until you hear that you are a sinner, you will not know your need of the Lord Jesus Christ. The the greatest help that I have received in my life is when somebody pulled me aside and said, what you're doing is wrong, and there needs to be a course correction. That is the greatest help. And so, Jesus is in love telling this woman what she needs to do with the rest of her life, that she needs to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, be faithful to her husband, and sin no more. Now, what I want to do is is I want to end this message by reflecting on the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and how that informs what we just saw because this text really in a microcosm is the explanation of Jesus's mission for coming into the world. This text is the explanation of Jesus's mission for coming into the world. There are two comings of Christ, two comings of Christ. There's a first coming and a second coming. Now, the Latin word for coming is adventus. Sometimes we refer to that as Advent, the Greek word is parousia. The first coming was 2,000 years ago, and the second coming is when? We don't know. It's in the future. If you say you know, you don't know. Jesus said, I don't know. So the second coming is yet future. That's what we're waiting for. Here's what you need to know, and I think this is so helpful for understanding what we just saw in this text. The purpose for each of our Lord's comings is different. The purpose for each of our Lord's comings is different. The purpose of His first coming is mercy. The purpose of His first coming is to bring salvation. Jesus says, Luke 19, 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Luke 5:32, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus came to bring salvation, to show mercy on sinners. He says specifically in his first coming, sometimes people would ask him to judge. Um, and, and what Jesus would say, this is John 8:15, he says, You judge according to the flesh, but I judge no one. I'm judging no one. He says in, in John twelve forty seven, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. There it is explicitly. Jesus in his first coming did not come to judge. He came to save. Once when Jesus was walking with his disciples on his way to Jerusalem, they wanted to stop at a village in Samaria. That village said, you can't stay here. And James and John said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven on this village and bring judgment? And Jesus Jesus rebuked them, said, no, that's wrong. We're not going to do that. We're going to keep going to Jerusalem. Um, Jesus came on a salvation mission. That was His purpose. His purpose was to show mercy. Now, the purpose of His second coming the purpose of His second coming is to establish His kingdom, His eternal kingdom, and to judge the world. Did you get that? The purpose of coming number two is judgment day. It's judgment day, and to establish His kingdom, and He will vanquish death and sickness and sin forever. Uh, For the believer, that day is the blessed hope, But for the unbeliever, it's the day of wrath where Jesus will throw you into hell. Jesus says this, Matthew, or sorry, John 5, 27, excuse me. He has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. It says in Matthew 25, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from the other as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And then with the goats, He will toss them into the lake of fire preserved for Satan in his angels and all those who are unbelievers. So Jesus first coming what is it? It's mercy, salvation to seek and save the lost. Second coming what is it? It's time's up. It's judgment day. There's no more time to repent on that day. When the son of man is seen in the clouds, Jesus says people are going to run for the hills. They're going to get in caves and hide. At that moment, time is up. And so, the message of the gospel, this is what Jesus said to the apostles. He said, command the people that I am coming to judge the living and the dead. I am coming to judge. That's the message right now. Uh, I hear the message often presented as God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, so believe in Jesus. That's not the whole message. In fact, that message doesn't even make sense in light of what is going to happen. Uh, The message that we are to preach is the message of Noah. You remember the message of Noah? What was Noah's message? There is a flood coming. There is a judgment coming but God in his love is providing an ark. I'm building it. So repent. And everybody scoffed at him. The message that Jesus commanded us to preach is that he is returning, coming again to judge everyone. But in his love, he's provided a way of escape, which is the cross, that all who believe in him will have forgiveness of sins in his name. Praise be to God. That mercy is available now. That mercy is available now. That's why Jesus didn't pronounce judgment on that woman right then and there. That's that's coming at the end of the age. He was there to give mercy. And he's here today to proclaim to you mercy. Are you right with the living God? Are you clothed? in the blood and the righteousness of the Lamb. He is coming again. And when he comes, he's coming with the host of heaven, he's coming on a a white stallion, and he's coming with a sword in his mouth to judge. So don't wait to repent. Mercy is available to all those who look to him. All that's required is that you humble yourself. You bring nothing in your hands, no self-righteousness, no works to bolster yourself up, and you come humbly to Jesus, and you call out to Him and say, Jesus, save me now, because I know that I deserve judgment for my sin. I am a sinner, and I know that I've broken the law. Say that He who stumbles in one point of the law is guilty of the whole thing. And I deserve death, and I deserve condemnation, and I deserve judgment. But you have made a way for mercy, praise be to God. And I am under the ark of your grace. And if you are clothed through faith in Jesus' blood and righteousness, on that last day, you will stand completely secure, unafraid, unashamed, unashamed, because you're standing not on your own merit, but on Christ's merit and Christ's righteousness. That's the great truth of the gospel. That's what Jesus came to do. This is Jesus's message to this woman, is that he offers mercy. Heavenly Father, we thank you for mercy that you've offered to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We could never procure on our own the forgiveness of sins. What do we do with the sins that we've committed, the sins that we will commit? But Lord, you made a way of salvation. You made an ark of rescue. You sent the Lord Jesus Christ to live for us and die for us. So I pray, Lord, that every single person here would come underneath the blood of Christ in faith, that they would look to you. They would look to you just like those Israelites did who were bitten by the serpents. As they looked to the serpent of bronze, that we would look to you who are lifted up for the sins of many. We thank you, Lord, for these truths May we live them and proclaim them. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at CapitalCommunityChurch.com.